for our scripture reading this afternoon. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians, Paul's letters to the Galatians, chapter 3. We'll read from verses 1 to 14. This morning we saw from where this truth comes from in the book of Habakkuk, and now we are going to see how this truth is applied in the New Testament. So let us read Galatians 3, verses 1 to 14. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doth Doth he it by the works of the law, or by, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faith, O Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come, might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So far, the reading of God's words. Let us sing now. Our text this evening come, comes from Galatians chapter 3. And we'll read again from verses 10 to 14. Galatians 3 verses 10 to 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse... For it is written, Cursed is every one that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Before COVID and all that, the church that we were part, were doing, we were doing a Bible study in a secular school in Wyoming, Michigan. And for a long time, we were doing this study in an elementary school. And little by little, we started making progress with the children. And for my surprise, many of those children who were coming to the Bible study had no or very little Bible knowledge. So they didn't know the main, the main characters in the Bible, like Moses or Noah. They didn't have whatsoever no background about the Bible. But little by little, they started engaging more and more. Until one day, that will be marked in my memory, an eight-year-old boy approached me after the 
after the Bible study, and, and he was shocked by the message. He was shocked by all that we discussed. And he asked me, he was shocked by the reality of hell, and he asked me, is there real fire down there? And I answered to him, yes, there is real fire down there. And then he was astonished, and he asked, so who goes to hell? Who goes to hell? And I tried my best to explain to that old-year-old boy about unrepented sinners and all those who don't come to Christ. And this word, sinners, called his attention. So he asked me, am I a sinner? Am I a sinner? And I, I asked him back, or, well, have you lied? And after a, a, not a long consideration, he said, yes, yes, I have. But then he flipped the table, and he asked me back, and have you lied? Have you lied? I, and I answered, yes, I have. And then he answered me the most important question. And then he, answered, he asked me, so what now? What now? And this is exactly what we will meditate this evening. This is, in fact, the most, the, the cornerstone, the very crux of the gospel. As Romans 3.23 say, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what now? What now? And the answer to this, this question is the heart of the gospel. And to answer this, we will look into Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Then to understand what our condition before God is and the only hope that we possess. For there is no hope by being under the law, and there is no condemnation by being in Christ for all nations. And we'll meditate on this sermon under two headings. First, we will see the curse of the law from verses 10 to 12. And then we will see the curse reverser, the curse reverser, verses 13 and 14. So Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia, to the churches in that area which were facing a false teaching which had sprung up in those churches that Gentiles, the Gentiles converted, needed to undergo the Jewish the Jewish. Jewish practice of circumcision to be considered a true Christians. And those Jewish were, were, this group was called the Judaizers. Those who were teaching this were called the Judaizers. And the reason behind this practice, the, the reason in their mind is what is at stake here. The question is, are there prerequisites for justification? Or are there any prerequisites for coming to Christ and for salvation? This is what is at stake here. Or is salvation by faith in the atonement of work of Christ alone? And so Paul explains in his letter the contrast between trusting faith alone and trusting in faith plus works for salvation as the Judaizers were doing. And Paul is speaking in chapter 3 against the Judaizers. And now he finally introduced an argument from the contrary. That is, he now starts talking about those who he rely on, on their own observance of the law to be saved. On those who trust in themselves and their own works to achieve salvation. And the core good news of the gospel is present in these verses that Paul exposed. The very crux of the gospel is being exposed here by the Apostles Paul, Apostle Paul. The reality of our sinful condition and the atoning work of Christ. He's contrasting the two groups here. Those who rely on Christ alone for salvation and those who rely in works for their salvation. So you can see in verses 9 and 10 how he is contrasting these two. Verse 9, those who rely on faith. And verse 10, our verse, those who rely on works. And he's to show the dreadful reality of being under the curse of the law. And maybe you can ask, so what is so dreadful? What is so terrible about being under the curse of the law after all? And this is what we can see in verses 10 through 12. Paul's argument is summarized in verse 8. 
in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham. So Paul has already argued that salvation or justification is through faith alone. Paul has already argued that. But now he's going to introduce his argument even more. From the contrary, those should try to work out their own salvation. So we could say that Paul is going to really nail home his point, to press on his point, to make clear before them what a foolishness they were doing. The first reason why being under the curse of the law is terrible is that not keep it the law, is that should not keep the law is cursed. Verse ten. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Those who are under the curse of the law are the same ones that appear in chapter two, verse 15, sixteen. Those who try to be justified by works of the law. So all those are being are under the curse. There is an equal sign. Those who try to be justified by their own works are under the curse. No exception whatsoever. So those who rely on works are cursed. But why? One could wonder. And Paul explains, For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So they are cursed because they fail to keep all that the law requires. The law requires perfect obedience. And they are cursed because they fail to keep it all. Those who seek salvation through law-keeping will face the curse of the law. And Paul is quoting him from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, in which the Israelites were going to enter the promised land, the famous chapter, and Moses is placing before them one side Mount Abel and the other Mount Gerizim. So he's placing before them blessings and curse. And he's showing before them Choose, choose life so that you can live. Choose the path of obedience so that you can live. But otherwise, you face all these this curses. And he lists all these curses. And the very last, the, 12, the, the last curse, he gives a list of 12 curses. And the last is a summary of them all. That to break one single command is to break them all and to call upon yourself all those curses. All of them will fall upon whoever breaks even one command. So those who don't do everything are cursed. So to fail to do all God's law is to fall under God's curse. The curse of God is the wrath of God upon sinners who refuse to believe in Christ alone for their salvation. And how much, how much law-keeping would then be enough to fulfill what the law requires. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So the law requires perfect and continuous obedience. Not, nothing less. It wouldn't be enough only to know the law or even to agree the law, to memorize the law, but it requires perfect and continuous obedience. Then the question is, who could ever be enough enough for these things? Who could ever fulfill it all? And the answer is no one. No one would ever be enough. No one was ever enough to do this. No one can accomplish all that is required by the law. But then were the people ever saved by law-keeping? Were they, maybe the Israelites under Moses saved by law-keeping? That could be a question, or that was the mindset of the Judaizers at that time. The answer is no. In the same chapter that Moses gives the curses and blessings, that he gives all the command to, to keep the commandments, he gives also instructions for an altar of sacrifice, pointing that always, even from the Old Testament times, salvation was always through the blood of atonement. So even from the Old Testament, Paul is arguing here, showing the Judaizers, even from the Old Testament, salvation was always through the atoning work of Christ. So we could ask, were these Judaizers leaving the same Old Testament theology? Were they going back to the Old Testament belief? Not at all. They were leaving as pagans. 
They were living as a religion that was never meant to save no one. They were living as pagans. That was never the Old Testament belief. That is Paul's argument, showing from Moses, from Abraham, from all scriptures, from Habakkuk, that salvation was always by faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul reminds them of a threefold demand of the law. First, that we are called to a comprehensive obedience, which means that you cannot keep one command or one portion of the law and not, not the others. As it is saying in James 2, 10 and 11, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So it's not enough to keep only part of the law, even 99% of the law, we must keep it all. That is what the law requires, perfect obedience. Second, the law demands personal obedience. We are not demanded only to know the law, but to keep the law. And that was very much what the Pharisees were doing. They knew the law very well. They would preach the law. They would talk about the law the whole time. They would even have the law fixed around them. But yet, even them could, could not keep it at all. And thirdly, God requires continual obedience. It's not just Sunday law-keeping. It's not just keeping the law on the Sabbath day. No, it's keeping the law all the time, every single day, always, perfectly. For a f- it wouldn't be enough to keep it for, a few, for some years and then for a few months to have a break. No, it would require perfect and continual obedience. So therefore, by ourselves... We are under the curse of the law. And Paul is showing how it is impossible to be justified by the works of the law. Because the standard is so higher, it's so higher, it's perfection, that by ourselves we would be under the curse of the law. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarized the state in which we are. In question 19, what is the misery of that state wherein man fell? Answer, all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and soul made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So the answer to that question, what now? What now? Left to ourselves, we are liable to the to death itself, to all miseries in this life, and to the pains of hell forever. But you may be wondering, what, is, what was so bad about these Judaizers trying to bring back circumcision? What was so bad about circumcision that Paul is speaking so strongly against them? Well, Paul is arguing not so much about the practice, but about the principle behind it. Paul is trying to show that you cannot work out your own salvation. You cannot even contribute to it. You cannot even give any little help for your salvation. But it must rest completely in Christ alone. And although it may sound obvious to us today, as Protestants that we are, it may sound obvious. All of us profess the doctrines of grace, but we are prone to the same thing. We are prone to a religion plus, in which we want to add our own personal requirements to the law, or what we think that is foundational to be saved. Many may follow a religion of works in their lives to quietly add some requirements to what we think means to be a Christian, a true, true Christian. And those things may even sound right in themselves. So for some, for instance, to be saved is, or salvation is equal faith plus assurance in which you are only saved if you have assurance. And if you don't have assurance, you cannot be saved. So for th- these people, salvation is faith plus assurance. For others, it may be faith in sacraments as it is for the Roman Catholics. So you are only saved if you have faith and partake of the sacraments. Or for others, it may be faith plus a good Christian marriage, Christian work, Christian looking. For reformed people, as we are, or seminary students, academic professors, faith, salvation may be equal faith plus theological precision. 
And we are often prone to boast of our theological precision as if we were saved by our theological precision. For charismatics, salvation may be a certain measure of faith. So instead of simply faith alone in Christ alone, is a certain measurement of faith. You need to achieve a certain level of faith, and then finally you can be saved. Or for Americans, salvation may be faith plus Republicans or Democrats. So we always are trying to add something that we think is foundational to be a Christian. Now what is in trending is that for minority salvation may be faith plus social justice. And even though we may agree with it, if we add anything else, faith plus whatever we put after the plus is going to be a religion that is never going to be able to save us. Because left to ourselves, if we have to keep anything, anything, even little that it would be, it would be a religion that is not that cannot save us. The truth is that, by some degree or, or the other, we are all tempted to add what is our version of Christian living that is enough for justification. And what are the works or add-ons to faith that we try to add to make it necessary for salvation? If we were saved by faith plus anything else, the answer to the question, what now, would it simply be liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And Paul then continues in verse 11, showing that no one is justified by the law, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, it is clear, it is so obvious. You foolish Galatians, you should have known this. As he called them in verse 1, you have been bewitched or someone has put a spell upon you so that you could believe otherwise. How could you forget these Galatians? And the second half of this verse is a warrant for the claim that Paul made in the first half. Why is this so evident? For the just shall live by faith. And Paul is quoting him from Habakkuk 2, verse 4, as we meditated this morning. For once again, he's showing from the whole scripture, Old Testament times to the New Testament, from the law, from Moses, from Abraham, from the prophets, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. He's showing this timeless truth. This was not a New Testament belief. This was not a New Testament religion. But this was always the gospel of grace meant by God. The just shall live by faith. The righteous, one is the righteous one is not justified by works, but by faith. It is faith alone that enables him to live righteously before God. The just shall live by faith, or of faith, out of faith, which is a parallel with what Paul says in the next verse, that the law is not of faith. Paul is comparing what is one one's basis for life. It cannot be faith and works of the law at the same time. And he goes back here to what he say at the beginning of the chapter, in verses 1 to 5, that the righteous man does not begin by faith and then is perfected by good works. No. He begins by faith and continues by faith also. The life of the Christian is a continuous life of faith. It doesn't only begin by faith, and then by our good living, we commend ourselves to God. No, it's a walk of faith. This in no way negates our obligation to pursue a life of sanctification, because for this reason we were called to be conformed to Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. But the ground for our justification doesn't rest, doesn't rest upon it. We live by faith. And it is well known how this verse, this very verse, impacted the life of Martin Luther. How this verse impacted his life and then impacted the whole Reformation afterwards. When Luther was yet a monk, he was trying to find favor before God by his own effort. Luther went through a dark period as he felt that God's wrath was upon him. 
He was battling, struggling with depression. He was realizing his condition of a sinful man before God. And as he was depressed and in this dark moment, one day, things started changing in his life. He went to the San John Lateran Church in Rome. And as he was visiting there, something happened. The Pope had promised an indulgence for giving the sins of any pilgrim who mounted its staircase. So pilgrims would come and climb the staircase of this church, believing that they could be saved by it. The belief was that this staircase was stained with the blood of Jesus. So the pilgrims would come and on their knees, climbing the staircase and often pausing to pray and to kiss the staircase. And as Luther was doing so, the words of the prophet Habakkuk suddenly came to his mind. The just shall live by faith. And in that moment, he seized his pilgrimage. He stopped what he was doing. He went back to Wittenberg and, and took this as a chief foundation of all his doctrine. And later on, as he meditated on this, Luther said, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God, and I was angry with Him. But when, by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again, like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. That is the power of these words, not only in the life of Luther, but all those who come to Christ, that we live by faith, not by us, by our works, but by faith alone. That is the only way that we can enter through the very paradise of God. What Paul is contrasting in verses 10 and 11 from the scriptures is that the pathway of faith leads to blessing, whereas the pathway of works leads to curse. And now on verse 12, he defends how these two things cannot be mixed. These two paths don't cross. So faith and works cannot be mixed for justification. It says, And the law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. We can see here the contrast with verse 11. The just shall live by faith, but this is how the Judaizers were trying to live. This is how these Judaizers were trying to commend themselves to God, by faith and law-keeping. So the use of the law, as God meant, wasn't, a, 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 wasn't a opposed, not at all, to justification alone, by faith alone. But the way that these Judaizers were trying to use the law would go completely against this. It cannot be used to merit salvation. So we could say that for Judaizers, at the time of Paul, God's law was a way to obtain life. God's law was a way to justification. Whereas for Paul, God's life, God's, God's law was a way to sanctification. So if for Paul, to live is Christ, for these Judaizers, we could say that for li to live is law. That is the reality. For them to live is law. The only way that I can live is law. But for, Christ, for Paul, to live Christ. To live is Christ. Justification is of grace. And we are saved by grace through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 9. Justification cannot depend in any means on our works. Otherwise, we would have something to boast. Otherwise, we would have something, we would have a glory of our own. We would share with God the glory that belongs to Him alone. No. The work of justification rests in His work alone. Even faith, even faith must be placed in the right place. We are justified not because of faith, but we are justified by faith. By faith. So faith is always instrumental in nature. The ground of justification is Christ. The ground of justification, what makes justification possible, is Christ and His work alone. 
Even Abraham was saved, not by the exercise of faith, but by the object of faith, by the work of Christ. For Christians, this ought to be very humbling. For us as His church, this ought to be very humbling. As we recognize that there is nothing that we could do. There is nothing that we do to commend ourselves to God. There is nothing that we bring in our hands. No, it's simply by His grace. It is contradictory to have a Christian that at the same time boasts and is proud in himself. How could this be possible? If we understand the gospel rightly, we must be humble. We must see that all was done by Him. The church ought to be marked by humility. Christians ought to live a life of humility. But for the unbelievers... This ought to be to bring trembling. This ought to bring great trembling. Because if you are an unbeliever, there is nothing, nothing you could do to merit salvation. There is nothing you could ever do to be saved by yourselves. Only Christ. There is no other way that leads to salvation. That is a common lie in our days. All the paths lead to Christ. No. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way. He is the only way. But now comes the question. How was it possible to change our condition? Or how could such a dreadful condition be changed? If we by ourselves were under the curse of the law, how could this be changed? And that is through the curse reverser. Verses 13 to 14. What now? As the boy asked. Here is Paul's response in verse 13. Right up in front. Paul says the answer. Christ. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. He made a curse for us. For it is written. Curse is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Christ is our curse reverser. Christ. Christ, it's beautiful how Paul answers right up in front. Christ, He is the answer. How could the curse of the law be reversed? Or what can faith do to reverse, to rescue a sinner like me and you from this curse? Well, the answer is not what faith can do, but faith in whom? Faith in whom? And what He has done. We must realize that faith in itself doesn't reverse the faith, the curse. If it did, then faith would be another kind of work. But it, the ground of our justification is the work of Christ, what He has done, His work, and not ours. And faith us bring us in faith bring us into communion with Him. Christ redeemed us. We often speak lightly these words. We, we use these words a lot. And we even sing these words. But sometimes not realizing the profound meaning that these words carry. With not realizing the price that Christ had to pay for these words to be true. Not realizing, realizing the payment that had to be made. For we broke the law, so we became under the curse of the law, the wrath of God. And the only way to escape from the deserving wrath was the payment of a ransom. But how could such a transaction be made? How could such a payment be made? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He was, he was not just a cursed, but he was made a curse. He was made himself a curse, as Second Corinthians five twenty one says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the pun punishment that belonged to us was placed on him. Children, do you remember the Old Testament when Jacob was very old? And then Joseph's sons were brought to him. Joseph brought his sons before Jacob. The old Jacob couldn't see well anymore. And then Joseph 
brought his two sons before him. And at that time was expected that a, a special blessing would be given to the firstborn, the son of the right hand. And then, do you remember how Jacob brought them and placed the elder son, Manasseh, the firstborn, at Jacob's right hand? And he placed Ephraim, the younger son, at his left, left hand. And that would be the normal thing. Then the special blessing would be upon the older, and the older blessing would be upon the youngest son. But what happened? What did the old Jacob do at that moment? He crossed his arms at the very moment when he would give the blessing to these two sons. He crossed his arms. And when Joseph saw that, what did he say? Not so, my father. Not so, my father. In another word, you are doing it wrong. Don't do this, daddy. You're doing it wrong. And Jacob said, I know, my son, I know. And the blessing that belonged to the older son fell upon the younger. Well, in the cross of Christ, we have the same thing. In the cross of Christ, God crossed his arms. He crossed his arms. The blessings that belong to Christ, his righteousness, fell upon us. At the, in the curse, all the curse of the law, being under the curse of the law, the sins that belong to us fell upon him. The same picture, the same picture. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. In the cross, he crossed his arms. And the place and time that this transaction took place was the Roman cross of Calvary. Paul uses Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, to show the curse, the capital penalty of sin. To be hanged on a tree, on a post or on a tree, was a mark of cursedness, was a mark of evil, a horrendous humiliation, a, a horrendous way of being executed, showing all the wickedness, a display of wickedness. But our Redeemer had to die on that cross. Like an enemy of God. Outside. Outside Israel. Outside the camp. He had to be accursed. Enduring the anger of God. Like an enemy of God. Enduring a humiliating death. So that he could receive the curse that belonged to us. What an irony. Remember in Numbers 21, when the Israelites were in the desert and they sinned against the Lord, and then complaining and grumbling against the Lord, and what did the Lord do? He sent fiery serpents to chastise them. And then the people came before the Lord, played before the Lord, asking for forgiveness, for a way out. And what an irony! What an irony. The very symbol of the curse. The very symbol of the curse became the way to escape the curse. A serpent, a fiery serpent, was lifted up on a post or hanged on a tree before their eyes. And in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus identifies himself with that curse saying that was about him, how he should die, how he would die, saying that was a sign that I would become that curse. The way to escape the curse was him to become a curse. What a tremendous reality. Jesus takes upon himself the curse so that we could escape the unescapable curse. What a tremendous reality. And the sun turned black as this awful transaction took place. And as the curse climaxes in those last hours, Christ then cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that is the answer. Paul is answering this question right here. He was made a curse for us. Why? Because he was made a curse for us. And in such a moment of agony, 
In such a moment of great agony and despair, what did the people do? What did they do as they were before the cross of Christ? What did they say? They mocked him. Save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Matthew 27, verse 40. Save thyself. How what an irony. They don't realize that had Jesus come down from that cross, we would have no way of salvation. If he had come down from, from that cross, we would bear the curse ourselves. The cross becomes a dividing line, a point of both God's justice and grace, wrath and mercy, as we saw this morning. The just for the unjust. A transaction was taking place on that cross. This is what means Christ redeemed us. This was the price to buy us back. The problem with the question, what now? What now? Is that we are looking inside, thinking what can we do to be saved? What can we do to merit salvation? But see, when we look to the work of Christ, when we look to what He has done, we see that He didn't, give, he didn't simply give us a possibility of salvation, he didn't just let, leave us to try our best with the hope that maybe, just maybe, we would be saved. Not at all. This is what the Galatians were doing. Pushing back, rejecting Christ's offer. They were rejecting His redemption and saying, I want to try my best. I want to be saved by my own means, by my own efforts. And so are we when we reject the gospel. Christ is being set forth our eyes Sunday after Sunday through the preaching of the word. And when we reject the gospel truth, we are doing the same thing. We are saying that we don't want him. We don't want to be saved by him, by his work. We want to do ourselves. We are taking the curses upon ourselves by our own desires. This is an invitation to look to Christ, to look to Him, to what He has done, to look to His perfect work of redemption. Look to Him, to rest in Him alone, by faith alone. For only Christ can redeem us from the curse of the law. And recently, there has been a fallback into Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. What a foolishness. They have been bewitched. How is this possible? We have received the gospel. We have received the preaching of Christ, of His work, and to fall back into salvation, equal faith, plus works. This is foolishness to reject Christ's offer of the gospel, His work of redemption, His work to reject, reject the uh, uh, salvation that, is, that rests in Him alone. It's nothing but foolishness. Oh, brother, brothers and sisters, may the Lord free us from this. May the Lord keep us away from those lies. And to fall back into a religion that could never, ever save us. One of my favorite Bible stories is about the thief on the cross. That is a puzzling story in many senses. And Pastor Alistair Begg once gave a very interesting illustration about this mysterious, mysterious guy. And I, I would like to share the, this illustration that Pastor Alistair Begg gave. This man was in one moment cursing Christ. He was cursing him. He has never been to a Bible study. He wasn't baptized. He didn't go through church membership. 
And yet, he made you heaven. So Pastor Alistair Begg proposes, what would have been to meet this guy in the moment that he arrives into heaven? What it would have been to ask this guy a few questions when he entered heaven? And he, he says this. First you ask him, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And the thief would answer, well, I don't know. I don't know. And then you ask him, what, what, what do you mean you don't know? He say, oh, I don't know. And then, well, so let us get, get a few things straight here. Are you clear in the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And the guy would answer, I never heard of it. And then, well, what about the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture? Oh, I never heard of it either. And then finally, to ask him, so then, on what basis are you here? And he answered, well, that I know. The man on the middle cross, the God-man on the middle cross said, I can come. That is the only answer. That is the only answer. It's not because what we do. Not because what we know. And it is very important. All these things, we must treasure them. But it rests on what He has done. What He has done. If the answer to that question, how, why do you think you are going to be saved, becomes with, well, because I... Your answer is already wrong. It's not because I. It's because He. It's because He loved us. Because the work that He has done. That is the only answer. You see the reality. This is how this doctrine is so powerful and makes Christianity unique. There is no religion in the world that preaches a gospel like this. That He has done all the work. All the work. And now we just simply trust in Him alone. We have a religion that is unique. We have a Savior that is like no other. And what then was the purpose for Christ to endure such a dreadful curse in our place? This is what we'll look into verse 14. This is the purpose of everything that Paul has, speak, has been speaking so far. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul now exposed the benefits of the covenant. That it is by being in Christ, by being in Christ that we can receive the blessings. A connection between the curse that Christ endured in our place in order that He could purchase the benefits of the covenant. You see, even being delivered from the curse, even if we were just delivered from the curse, the redemption would not have been complete. Just by turning away the wrath of God, the redemption of Christ would not have been complete. He did more than that. We would still lack communion with God. We, we would still lack being brought back into communion and fellowship with Him. But He did that also. He bestowed the blessings upon us so that we could endure, so that we could receive these blessings. Just being free from the curse of the law was not Christ's final goal. And it is precisely in Christ, by being united to Him, that we can enjoy the fulfill, fulfillment of this blessing. It is in Christ that the blessing of Abraham, the blessing promised to Abraham, comes to the Gentiles, comes to all of us. And both of these purposes are accomplished by the work of Christ Delivering us from the wrath of God and bringing us into communion with Christ. The blessing of Abraham giving to the Gentiles the promise of the Spirit being received by faith. It is in Christ 
that it comes to fulfillment. And is this a new theology that Paul is teaching? Is this something new? Paul is showing those Judaizers that were claiming to go back to Old Testament religion. No. It was ever, always like this. It was like this for Moses. It was like this for Abraham. It was like this for the prophets. And it is like this for us today as well. Paul shows that the Galatians are members of Abraham's family and partakers of the blessing of the Spirit. He explained that this family shares the faith of Abraham, the promise given to the Abraham. And now the gospel comes to the Gentiles and all those. And as much as they were members of Abraham's family, so are we. So are we made partakers of this blessing. We are connected not by a bloodline tracing us back to Abraham. No, but by the blood of Jesus. We share the same blessings that did Abraham by the blood of Jesus. And in this final verse, Paul encapsulates his whole argument. That there is in Christ that believers enjoy the blessing of Abraham. And then he makes in this verse then a Trinitarian confession of his faith. Notice how this verse includes the whole Trinity. It is the Father who makes the promise to Abraham and who received us as his children, as he's going to speak in chapter 4 of Galatians. And it is Christ that the promise, by, that the promise is received by Christ. And it is the Spirit who we received and who indwells in us. So in this verse, he's making a Trinitarian confession, showing how the whole Trinity is involved in the work of redemption to us. It is a promise of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by His grace, receiving the promise, blessing by God's grace alone. And I would like to conclude this sermon with two applications from this message. First, I would, I would like to address you who is hearing tonight and maybe hearing Sunday after Sunday the message, but in your heart you are still wondering, what now? You are still asking yourselves this question, what now? What now? What can I do? What could I possibly do? The call for you tonight is drastic. It's very drastic. For indeed, your situation is drastic. You have been bewitched, as Paul says in verse 1. You have been bewitched. You have heard many sermons. You believe in Christ, but you still wonder what you have to do to be saved. What you have to do to be saved. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Verse 3. Oh, my dear friend. Do not look inside yourself. Do not look to yourself. Do not even look to the level of your faith. No. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Him. It is only His work that can save us. There are no requirements or prerequisites to come to Him. There is no one who is unworthy to come into Him. No. Look to him. Christ is being set forth before our eyes, even tonight. Look to him. And he invites us today to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He made a promise. So hear his message and come to him. And my second application is for you, dear believer has already believed in this message, who has already trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you have partaken of this reality of being forgiven by Him. For you, as church, as a whole as well, this is the most powerful truth to promote both equality and mission in the church. Yes, to promote equality and mission in the church. 
This truth will promote equality because it shows us how all the peoples, all the nations are made partakers of the same blessing. It leaves no door for any kind of second-class Christianity. You see, there is no such a thing as, as Jew, Dutch, American, Brazilian, Chinese. There is no such a thing as second-class Christianity. All were made partakers of the same blessing. Equally made children of Abraham, children of God. We became partakers of the same blessings. The church is a place of equality. Not because of any secular mindset. Not because of any secular teaching. No, because we know, we know that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We know what it means to be at the foot of the cross. That only Him receives all the glory. And that we are in Christ. And this truth promotes equality. Promotes unity in His body. There can be no division in His body either. This promotes unity as well. And finally, this truth ought to promote mission in the church. Mission. We were once, all of us, outsiders, Gentiles. We are not children of Abraham by a bloodline. We were these Gentiles that the Bible speaks about. We were once strangers, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we were brought in. We were brought in. And what made such a difference? What made this difference? That we were once strangers and now we were brought in. The preaching, the proclamation of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. As Paul says in verse 1, Christ, Jesus Christ evidently set forth before our eyes. These people did not see Christ's crucifixion. They were not there when Christ was crucified. But yet Paul is speaking that Christ was crucified before their eyes. Christ was set forth before their eyes by faith. In the same way, Sunday after Sunday, by the preaching of the gospel, Christ is set forth before our eyes. So, O oh, Church of Christ, as we go out into the world, as we go out to the weak, let us preach this message. Let us preach this gospel. And if they reject this, re reject this message... If they reject this message, let it be because of their own foolishness. And not because we didn't preach. Not because we didn't proclaim the gospel to well creatures. Let it be because they reject the messages. And not because we omit ourselves to preach the gospel. As we go out, when you hear the question, What now? Share the good news that it is in Christ that we are made children of God and enabled to call Him Abba, Father. Our Father. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, what a wonderful promise, God, that salvation comes not by our own works, but by the work of Christ. And, O oh Lord, as we come before Thee, we rest in Christ alone for our salvation. O oh Lord, we come before the foot of the cross with humble submission to Thee, Lord, resting on Thee alone for our salvation. And, O oh Lord, for those who are here even tonight and have not yet believed in this message, O oh Lord, have mercy on them. Open their eyes, even through the preaching of this word, even through the proclamation of this word, set forth Christ before their eyes. And, O oh Lord, for those who have already believed in this message, O oh Lord, enable us to proclaim our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to all creatures. And as we go out, make us...
believers of Christ, makers partakers of these same blessings, and now how we long for the day that we will be with all children of God in heaven, with all thy children of all ages, all Christians from all ages and every place, partaking of the same blessing, because all of us rest in thee alone for salvation. So, O Lord, keep us and prepare for this day. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.